This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Barron's The Way Forward. I'm Greg Bartalis, and my guest today is Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist of Sanctuary Wealth. Today, she will share her investment outlook for 2024. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, I'm at least as excited as you are, because this is just a subject that's really, really going to resonate with the audience, and you are an uh, ideal person to be sharing their outlook. So tell us if you want a little about your background. We can jump in as soon as you want. So I can't believe I'm going to say this. I've been in the industry for 40 years. I've reinvented myself many, many times. Um, But most of my career was at Merrill Lynch and Bank of America. I was in research. And what I'm known for is I ran the technical department uh, where I was a ranked uh, analyst. But then I went over to Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, and I worked in the CIO office for a number of years. I retired in 2020, but came back, and I'm now working for Sanctuary Wealth as their chief investment strategist. Let's talk about the markets. What's your crystal ball showing? So my crystal ball is calling 2024 the bucking bill for stocks and bonds. So we think stocks stay in a bull market next year and that bonds join the party, but investors are going to be bucking those trends. Not everyone's going to really believe that the bull is really here. Okay. So let's. there's a lot to unpack. Let's first begin with a little discussion of where we are. And just for you listening, we're, this is today's uh, November 30th. There's going to be a little delay, but all the prices targets, etc., are as of that date. So as I speak, the NASDAQ is up about 37% year to date. S&P 500 is up about 19%. The Dow is up 7, 8%, even though I think it hit a, a high on the year today. Next year, do you have any thoughts about you know which parts of the market may do well and, and also perhaps in terms of magnitude or to the extent you can or want to get granular? Well, I like to get granular because that's the only way you can really help investors. So our target range for the S&P 500 sometime next year, not necessarily by year end, is 5,200 to 5,400. We think that mega cap growth stocks continue to lead. In other words, technology is still the leadership. We think semiconductors continue to lead. Um, AI is real. It's here. Uh, Even when you look at the Magnificent Seven in terms of earnings, they've produced most of the earnings this year. Um, And I know the 493 stocks may look cheap, but they just haven't produced the earnings yet. There's also philosophy um, that growth stocks outperform when you have scarcity of earnings. And we're in an environment right now where earnings are scarce. And what that means is, is that investors want to own the company with earnings, but there's just a smaller limited selection. So those PE multiples get bid up. And I still think we're going to stay growth. I don't think we'll shift to value. With that said, you have value pockets um, like financials, particularly the banks and the regional banks. You have small caps. Um, I think they can rally and have substantial rallies. I just don't think they're the leadership of the market. I think technology does stay leaders. I wanted to, on on that point, mention that I just read yesterday in a newsletter that covers Vanguard, I'm forgetting the exact name, but they mentioned that the 
The Vanguard's growth index fund was up 41% year-to-date, 41%, whereas its value index was up a mere 3%, right? Which is kind of remarkable. But there is, right now, there's almost a little bit of a say backlash, but it's like, oh, the Magnificent Seven is expensive and all, but, you know... It may well be, but historically, it's often few, a handful of stocks or relatively few that will carry gains, and it's not, it's not a rare thing to have concentrated leadership. Now, you could slice it and dice it and say it's an over-concentration, but you also have a look at the financial firepower of the company. They're not all created equally. Yeah, these are real companies. This is, this is not the internet in N2000 where you have companies with terrible balance sheets and valuations in the stratosphere. These are real companies, real balance sheets, and many of them have cash on the balance sheet. Um, and I understand concentration risk. I think we always go back and think of the nifty 50 and eventually they did peak in you know the the 73-74 but it's a condition it's not a timing tool and i found pe ratios yes they're important and they're important to look at but they're not a timing tool and markets can be expensive but markets can also get more expensive who's to say that markets can't get more expensive when you're in a secular bull market meaning the markets are trending higher over time pe multiples actually expand and when I do, because um, I did spend some time doing quantitative work in, 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 a, in one of my roles, and we use something called the Z-score, and we look at it over a 10-year rolling period, and we look at the P-E multiple of the S&P 500, and when you do that, the S&P is actually cheap, not expensive. You mentioned financials, banks, and small caps could, could do well next year. What would be the catalyst for small caps? I'm curious because I kn- they've underperformed large caps for quite a long time. And I know you still over overall still think large cap growth is the place to be. I've been recently reading about how the valuation disconnect or difference between small caps and large is, is quite e- extreme. Does there need to be a catalyst or is it more just a market perhaps over time just saying, oh, gee, this is a little bit out of whack. Like, let's start bidding these up and, and closing it. Or what? I'm just curious what your thoughts you, are Well, there. you have to have a catalyst for markets to go up. What happens if interest rates have peaked? What happens if we yeah. don't go into a recession? Mm-hmm. And we don't think we're going to be in a recession for 2024. What happens if manufacturing growth comes back? Right. And these are not being factored in. I don't think they're being factored in. I think people are still afraid of, of uh, a recession. Some people are still calling for a recession. Um, I do think the Fed wants to keep interest rates as high as long as possible. When they say higher for longer, I believe them. But if inflation continues to come down, there's going to be pressure on them to lower interest rates. Or let's put it this way, the market will lower rates for them. And the S&P 500 has been very correlated to the 10-year Treasury yield. And if the 10-year treasury, it's, it's actually dropped dramatically from 5%. Today, we're standing about 4.3%. We're very oversold in rates. We, we can certainly back up. But what happens if rates fall to 3.8% sometime next year? That could be a catalyst for equities to go higher. And I do think people are, are sensitive to valuation, and they're going to want to own things that appear inexpensive. So I think small cap from their lows can rally 20%. I think banks, particularly the regionals off their lows, can go up 30%. I just don't believe that they're the long-term leadership of the marketplace. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, so much right now is really keying off rates. That's kind of the tail wagging the dog, it seems. Um, The 10 years around 43 
it was uh, just brushing around near five in October, and this past month was the best month for bonds since apparently the 1980s. So I do think that if if bonds should go lower, that can only help risk assets, especially you know cer- certain um, growth tech stocks, small caps, things like that might be more sensitive to it. Obviously, bonds would rally. Obviously, REITs would do well. But that's a big question, right? Like, I don't know. And and if that happens, the breadth of the market is going to expand. So a a lot of criticism has been that it has been a very narrow market. Well, what happens now if we get a broader participation? That will show that the strength of the market is actually improving. Right. And we are, for what it's worth, in a seasonal seasonal strong period. And then you're going to get perhaps the January effect, maybe even kicking in sooner or what have you. So a couple of potential tailwinds. And then you have the presidential election next year. I was going to ask about that. How does that calculate into this, especially vis-a-vis the Fed and the real politic of maybe what it can or should or might or not, or et cetera, will do? Well, there's always politics, right? Yeah. And um, But when we look at cycle work and we look at the presidential election cycle and when you have an incumbent running, never before has the market ever been down. And Biden issued three major pieces of legislation, the Infrastructure Act, uh, the Inflation Protection Act, and the CHIPS Act. And part of that stimulus will really start kicking in in 2024 and will continue through 2026. And I think that's another reason why markets can go up is that you still have all this stimulus that's hitting. And we've never before in history had all this stimulus hitting when we weren't in a recession. I personally think it's possible in 2024 that we get what's called, or what I used to call a look back recession, where it gets called that, yes, pockets of the economy did have a recession and we're now out of it. Because I'm starting to see things like ISM manufacturing, the OECD leading indicator, uh, all bottom out and start turning up. And today we had the Chicago ISM manufacturing number, and it was above 50%. It was 55%. It was actually a blowout number. So I think there are pockets of strength that are in the economy. Now, that would be a risk. The Fed, if that continues, the Fed's not going to want to cut interest rates. So we can get a lot of volatility like we did this year. The market this year thought that the Fed would cut rates, and they haven't. And every time they didn't see it cut rates, you got a correction but you didn't have a bear market. And there's one other thing that I think is very important to analyze, and that's how many corrections we've had over the last five years. Normally, historically, you have a bear market, meaning S&P down 20% or more every three to four years. We've had three bear markets in five years. You had a bear market, meaning down 20%, and I'm doing intraday high, intraday low, not closes. Got it, okay. So in 2018, then you had the COVID bear market. 34%, fastest bear market in history. Yep. And then you had a bear market in 22. And then we just had a 10% correction this year. That's an enormous amount of price adjustment that's happened to the markets that I don't think uh, investors give enough credit to. And one other thing now, let's talk about rates and real estate. So on the one hand, prices are holding up very well, partly because there's very limited supply. People are not selling and the reason they're not selling is because so many have locked in rates at a you know three four percent a massive number. So that's obviously bad if you're looking to buy, and could be problematic if you're looking to sell and buy elsewhere. But uh, I think the Wall Street Journal recently wrote a story basically saying that higher rates are having less of an aggregate impact 
on the economy than in decades past, partly because so many people have locked in these rates so that the higher rates are affecting fewer people in the aggregate than they had in year in previous years. So that the high rates are, certainly are negative, but it's having more, more of an acute impact on a smaller group. And again, is, a, is beneficial in many ways for a great many as well. So I think that's like a headline with skewing negative, but it's the underneath the surface, it's perhaps not as uh, negative or damaging, if you will. And the other thing is, is our economy used to be very heavily manufactured based, right. which is very sensitive to interest rates. Now we're really run by the consumer and the consumer was flush with cash and the higher rates didn't affect them for the reasons that you you have just pointed out. But if you look prior to COVID, we were still very short enough housing for the population. There's about 4 million homes that we were short. We didn't build during COVID. So we're, we're at least 5 million plus homes short. So I think housing stays in a bull market. Now, that's an aggregate for all of the United States. There could be pockets of weakness. But I'm actually, if, you, if I look at home builders as a proxy for the housing market, they actually look very attractive. Yeah, well, a lot of money is going there now. A lot of people are like, well, I can't buy homes on the market. No one's selling, so going to go to the home builders. Yeah. And so it, it, it's interesting because things that we're used to in terms of modeling the economy kind of feel like they've broken down because historically, especially when I entered the industry back in the 80s, if the Fed ever took rates from zero to 5% and we went to five and a quarter in less than a year, we would have been thrown in a massive recession with a lot of unemployment. And that did not happen this cycle. And I think part of that is because of all the monetary stimulus that we have had. 100%. Yeah. Right. Between uh, generational low interest rates, basically zero, to the Fed building a balance sheet that at its peak was at nine trillion dollars. Right. And now you have fiscal stimulus that's being added again at a time when we're not in a recession. And I do believe over time this will be inflationary. But for the near term, it looks like inflation has peaked. And that will allow rates to go down. But I think from a secular standpoint, meaning over the next 10, 10 15, 20 years, uh, inflation can track higher and interest rates can track higher. Do you think the 2% target of the Fed is is realistic? Will that be reached or will they just say, eh, maybe it'll be more 3% or what's your take on that? So, so let's talk about what people are not talking about. What happens if you have a CPI print a negative number? So when I look at CPI year to year, and this is using headline, not core, and I look at patterns and repeated patterns, this looks very similar to the 1950s, where inflation spiked up around 9%. Inflation came down over a period of time over a couple of years and actually went negative. But that 1950 was an important low where inflation actually tracked and didn't peak until basically 1980. And then if you use interest rates and use historical interest rates, you had zero interest rates in the 1930s on cash. You had zero interest rates between 20 and 21. We had new lows in the 10-year, which we did not have in, in the 1930s. And from the 1930s to the 1980s, there was a secular uptrend in interest rates. So I, I think we've shifted 
I don't think higher rates, if they happen over a shorter period of time, not very fast, an economy and the consumer can adjust. Mm -hmm. But I do think somewhere down in history, we'll see 10% interest rates again. But that may be 10 years from now, could be 15 years from now. But I, I, I think this is important for fixed income investors because something that we're not used to is called laddering where when you build out a fixed income portfolio, you have multiple different years, so you always have something maturing. So you can reinvest in a higher interest rate. And I think that will be the key to success for a fixed income investor or a fixed income portfolio. Okay. And and I want to ask you now, so you mentioned 10% is possible sometime down the road without putting any timeline on it. But if we can agree that you're, you're, you're suggesting that rates directionally will be higher for longer, is that fair, right? That's fair. Okay. So then how, how should an investor skew their holdings for the long term? Are, would you, you know, add a little to stocks or do you lean a little into commodities? I mean, crypto or whatever. I'm just curious, what's your take on that? So if we are going into a higher inflationary environment over time with higher interest rates, equities are actually a hedge against inflation. If gold can break out and go to an all-time new high, which it has not done yet, uh, it's possible that commodities will be part of a hedge in a portfolio. And generally, is gold has historically been a hedge. Um, but I'm also a very big fan of the crypto space. And I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. And I view Bitcoin as a store of value. It is a scarce, scarce um, currency, if you, if you will, if you want to call it that, because it will only create 21 million. The other thing is we have the halving next year where the, the, the miners get less Bitcoin. And we, don't, we haven't had Bitcoin around for a long time, but if history repeats... Uh, Bitcoin generally goes up after the halving. It goes. It, it can go up before the halving and significantly after the halving. I, I want to dig into Bitcoin for a little. It's around $37,000, $38,000. It's been in existence for 14 years, I think. Many, 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 many of the smartest minds have called it all kinds of terrible things. And to date, which is all we have, they've been dead wrong. Doesn't mean they won't be vindicated eventually, but at this point they've been they've been wrong. And a lot of people who are who actually want to dance on its grave now will say, "Hey, it was over sixty-five thousand. It's fallen a lot." Well, that's true, but they're they're those people are only comparing it to an all-time high, not you know for most of its history, it's still far above. So the scarcity you mentioned twenty-one. I think actually the actual number will be more like nineteen million or far less because a lot of these. Some people have died. Some passwords are forgotten, right? So the, the actual supply is lower. What you know? But point right. taken. Address to skeptics who say this has no intrinsic value. It's it's literally nothing, etc. I just I'm curious. I want to hear what Marshall the best argument to address the skeptics. I'm curious. Well, the first thing is when the SEC approved a future. I think it was validated. Because then why did they approve a future? And the future has to be based off a of spot. So I think it's in, inevitable at some point we will have an ETF on, on, on Bitcoin. Yeah, that's the market's assuming that now. That's part of the big rise this year. Yeah, a Exactly. So, yeah. so, so from, from a regulatory standpoint, um, I think it's already been validated. Bitcoin's intention is to be like, the, think of it as the cash of the internet. Mm-hmm. 
um, a transaction mechanism. And um, you're never going to say it's exactly the same, but how do you value art? Yep. Yes, you have something tangible, right? Bitcoin is not tangible. A lot of times it's what we value something at. One person will look at it and find a lot of value. Another person may look at that piece of artwork and think it's not worth anything. Exactly. And and that holds for antiques, rare baseball cards, paintings, you name it. There's no intrinsic value, no cash flow, no dividends. It's simply on the market at work, supply and demand. And And that's what I think Bitcoin, it will be what the market views it as. Mm Mm-hmm. How one thing though I noticed with it is that, and this is not unique to Bitcoin. It's really with any financial asset though. Is like when the prices get high, the ebullience and excitement peaks, and then when it's low, everyone's like, "It's dead." You know, if a spot ETF is approved, what do you think will be the impact? Because a lot of people, the bulls, tend to believe that this is going to open a new world for advisors. A lot of money will be, you know, it's a game changer. That the bulls will argue in terms of access, even. Yes, it it is a game changer because the way you have to access it now is um, there's risks. And this can get very detailed. If you want to own it, let's say through a Coinbase, that's called a hot wallet. And I was just even talking to somebody and they, they said, I'm afraid to own a hot wallet because there's been hacks and people have lost their money and there's no recovery. Well, you can own it through what's called a cold wallet. And basically, that cold wallet is like a little USB port, and it doesn't hold your crypto there. It holds the password. And if you lose that little thing with your password, you'll never access. And we, we've heard the horror stories, like the yes. dumpster diving and all that. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of fear because it's not easily accessible. Whereas if you create a... Um, a vehicle like an exchange traded fund, because there are trusts now that you can invest in. There are ways that you can get it. But I think the market is saying is if you can get an ETF and get it on an exchange and have regulation around it, there's going to be a much higher confidence level for the consumer to want to own it. And that demand will increase. And and I do agree with that. I do believe that demand will increase if an ETF is launched. What's going to be interesting is there are now a number of companies that have listed for an ETF. So it's who gets the ETF listing and how many ETF listings. Right. I mean, I think a, double, a dozen or so firms have applied for the... Correct. And I don't think these firms are applying if they don't think it's real. Yeah. Yeah, These also, are not stupid people. <laughs> yeah, well, see money to be made. Yeah, and, and I guess a lot of the price obviously will be really important in that context too. Correct. So I think if that happens, you're going to see a rush to go through the door. And I think could you hit an all-time new high? You could. Then we'll probably peak out because you're going to get all this euphoria. It'll get very overbought. It'll pull back. But I do think it will set a new investment trend in portfolios. In terms of use cases, the promise of it for financial tracks, uh, transactions has not really materialized much, even though I will add that it's interesting. There are certain companies that sell coins and precious metals that will accept payment in credit card, personal checks, and crypto. You actually can pay them. And what's interesting is they, I guess, will quickly sell it, convert it to dollars or what have you. Longer term, I mean, what what do you think is the fundamental... Um, driver because i know like you mentioned it's like it's like internet money it's borderless 
you know, for people in America may help less than people who might live under oppression or may not, who may be bankless, right? So there are other scenarios too. That's another bigger use case, which we haven't talked about for, for those individuals that live in countries where they don't trust the government. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they have shifted to, to, or they want to shift to a more uh, blockchain solution. This is really what's called a blockchain solution. Uh, which is very transparent, as you said, borderless, and um, has a record of who the buyer and seller is. And so I, you have 7 billion people in the world, even if you took 1 or 2 billion based on the limited supply, it becomes a medium of exchange. I think some people will look at it as a medium of savings. But look at it simply. You, you can buy Bitcoin on, Baypa- on PayPal, which means over time you're going to be able to pay for things. Uh, with Bitcoin on PayPal. So it will be a medium of exchange and some people will use it as a hedge. I think it's going to have a number of use cases depending on where you live and why you're putting it uh, either on your PayPal or in your investment portfolio. Right. And what's interesting too is a global currency, I mean, again, with fiat, you have basically unlimited supply, right? And that is, I think, a, a, an interesting component to this, is that fixed supply. And also, it, it at least certainly has been resilient because in China, they banned Bitcoin mining, if I'm not mistaken. You right? are correct. And, um, you know, it's like, well, okay. It did nothing. Yeah. It did nothing. <laughs> it, it, it did nothing. So, you know, so the, the, the late, great Charlie Munger lamented that America permits it. Well... That's a separate discussion. Whatever you, wherever you fall in that, the point is, even if America were to ban it, it's resilient and it's global. So that that will that would have an impact, I presume. But but it because it's peer to peer, right? It it kind of has the life of its own to some extent. Well, the uh, the bigger, broader macro umbrella that I'm using is that we're moving into a digital world, and it's not just about Bitcoin. Our whole world, our whole world of technology is changing. And AI is that next generation. The blockchain is the next generation. What a lot of investors are not even aware of is they're in the process of taking stocks and putting them on chain, right? We we will eventually transact on chain. There's a lot going on behind behind the scenes that investors are not seeing. And AI is that next generation. Um... There, there's a slide that I use many times in my presentation, and I go back to the 1500s. And if you look at what the technology was, it was a sundial. We were agriculturally based, and the sundial was your technology. Our economy did not change until the steam engine was created in the 1700s. And I believe with the invention of technology, particularly the internet, and I mark it as 2000. The internet was developed before 2000, but that's a nice, easy number to start with. We went digital. And, you know, it's even hard for me because I didn't grow up with technology. My technology was a telephone and a TV. Getting a longer cord on my telephone was a huge improvement so my parents could not hear my conversation. I remember black and white televisions. Technology enhancement was color. The generation growing up now, like my kids, get frustrated with me because I can't move fast enough on my phone, right? And they can find things quickly, and I I can't. So there's a huge, in many ways, there's a generational gap because we are shifting into a different paradigm 
of technology and uses of technology. And just because you don't understand it or it's different doesn't mean that it's not going to exist or grow. There are many investors that did not understand technology and chose not to invest because they didn't understand it. That did not stop technology shares from not going up. Let me ask you about CBDC, central bank digital currencies. They're emergent. I think you have that in China, a few other countries, and the reports suggest that the U.S. is ever more closely looking at that. Tell me if there, what that means for crypto, if anything. I'm just curious if you have any high-level so, thoughts. Yes. So my high-level thought is there will be a day that there is no paper currency or coins. Everything will be digital. That's And if you go to China, my understanding is, because I have not been there in a while, mm-hmm. that everything is already digital. So I, I, I think we wind up with a coinless, paperless world. And so, yes, sta- stable coins or a central bank digital currency. And we may have multiple around the world. Okay. Now, what's the impact of that? What does that mean? I don't think we fully know yet. I think that's a great question and one of the great unknowns. How does that get controlled? Can the Fed print money? Can the Fed not print money? Or, or the ECB? Um, I think we're learning as we're going. Mm-hmm. Well, one, if, if I may ask, uh, mention, on, I mean, CBDCs, what's really interesting is I think the, the central banks would be far more empowered. So, they could take rates to a negative place if they wanted to. I mean, they, I'm just using a, a well. They already a, have. They did that well, in Europe already. <laughs> okay, you're right, right, right. But 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 you, it's more of a flexible lever, if you will, to to adjust or manipulate what you want the consumer to do. It gives them arguably a little more latitude. And and if it it and well, we could also talk about a potential lack of privacy, right? Where if the spending is if if it's it's not it, with the money you have it, 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 privacy, right? With cash, I mean, now we all lost a ton of privacy with credit cards, right? Everything is kind of there, but once everything is digitized, there is no privacy anymore. And you've learned that because you have seen with the events that have taken place with FTX and with Binance that they can track because everything is on chain. So, although it, it's very transparent, and and there's pluses and negatives, but yes. You, you can follow the trail, as, yeah. as, as, as they say. And I, it, I'm i not sure we truly know what the true impact is, but what we do know is everything is instantaneous. Right. And everything is global instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and those are attributes of crypto, yes. Yes. So back to the more <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to go so far astray but going back more to the asset allocation and let's use bitcoin as a proxy for crypto depending on the age i know it all the numbers will vary but what does this mean for your average investor portfolio and i know timelines matter is it like you say 1% allocation 2 3 i mean so we we don't have an official allocation yeah. but you know i'll tell you the younger generation already has it it's it's already in their, what, however they manage their portfolio, they, they already own it. They're in it already. It's a matter of, will the baby boomers put it in their portfolio, yeah. right? Because that's, that's the major asset class that we have. And how much would a baby boomer be willing to put in? And this is where I talk about that generational gap. They can't mentally get their arms wrapped around it. So I think this is a younger generation investment than necessarily a baby boomer investment. And you mentioned with Bitcoin, scarcity, store of value, and that's kind of a similar argument for gold, if you will. Um, Does this have any impact more on 
uh, gold, for example? Like, do net investment dollars flow away, or is it like they can coexist and both do well? I mean, I think they can coexist, but it's interesting because even with all the concern and negative press that Bitcoin has had, it's performed better than gold. And we've had periods of inflation now where gold did okay, but Bitcoin did better. So I think we're learning as we're going. It's too, no, it's too new. We don't have enough history. But I do believe that they c- can coexist. Gold's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's been around 5,000 <laughs> 5, years. Anywhere. Central banks across the world have tons of it. And let me tell you, I love wearing it, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and this, I think you just made a very good point. The true buyers of gold right now have been uh, foreign central banks. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And it's funny because the common caricature is like, you know, there's the gold bug, you know, oh, the, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, you know, okay, there's some of that. But central banks across the world have tons of it for good reason. And they have a slightly different investment profile. So what what else in the market? So I want investors to stay optimistic and not pessimistic. And to invest for the longer term and not for the shorter term. It, it, you know, st- study after study and academic study after academic study shows that the investor that stays investor stays invested wins. And you, you might want to revisit your asset allocation model um, with your financial advisor, maybe on a quarterly basis to just to maybe manage it because if stocks go up, maybe you're too overweight equities. Um, being invested in fixed income, you know, they talk about the 60-40 portfolio is dead. I, I don't think it's dead. I think it's alive. I just think we have to learn how to manage that portfolio. And the good news is, oh, baby boomer, you're going to have another way of generating income in your portfolio that we haven't had for 15 or 16 years. But how we manage that will be very critical and important. Um, I, I still think technology is the leader. I think emerging leadership is in energy stocks, but I just don't think they're going to lead. I do like uh, industrial stocks, but they're not leaders. So at the end of the day, you want a balanced portfolio. You want to be diversified um, because there are different market cycles and you want to generate that balance. And if you're an investor that needs income, you now have multiple ways. Tina, Tina is no longer just Tina, which was there was no alternative. We now have alternatives. And we didn't even touch upon alternative investments. And that's probably one of the fastest growing pockets of the wealth management industry, the pension funds allocated to, to, to the private markets. And I think the biggest asset allocation move that's occurring now is bringing um, alternatives because they've been democratized so they have the flexibility uh, in terms of liquidity to actually go into an individual uh, portfolio. And again, sometimes you have to have a certain uh, profile to be able to access those investments. You have to have a certain level of risk tolerance. But if you can meet that, I think you're going to see a lot of growth in in the uh, alternative space. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It was an incredible deep dive, and I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Wonderful. My guest was Marianne Bartels. For more advisor-specific podcast, please check out barons.com slash podcast. For the way forward, I'm Greg Bartalis. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.